I also want to speak to those of you who are watching online, uh, add my welcome. And we've mentioned this before, but I, I wonder if you would uh, please uh, encourage us. Um, you're either watching through uh, uh, Facebook or on YouTube. On YouTube, if you uh, take your screen and uh, partialize it, there's a place there for comments. On Facebook, of course, there's comments. If you can't find a place to put a comment, then uh, text Tony. Um, as Tim said at the beginning, and the traditional traditional greeting on Easter is, uh, "He is risen," uh, with a response of, "He is risen indeed." So, those of you online that are joining us, it would encourage us to just to read that you are with us in heart and spirit. Just send a message in some way. He is risen indeed, and uh, we will rejoice with you. It would be great encouragement for us. We rarely know who you are. We just know numbers, and it would be great to, to feel that, uh, that sense that you're watching and joining. So that's my little commercial announcement. Would you pray with me again? Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself within your word. And show me my Savior within your word. Make the book live to me. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn to John 17. We're going to be reading verses 6 to 19. John 17, 6 to 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have joy 
have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It is our belief that in the verses I just read, verses 6 to 19, that Jesus is praying specifically for his apostles. The twelve are now the eleven. These are his designated apostles. These are the ones that who lived with Jesus, who witnessed the signs and the wonders. These are the ones who, in fact, witnessed the resurrection. They are the ones that he is praying for. We get that from verse 20 because there's a transition in verse 20 that reads, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. So Lord willing, there will be a, a Sunday coming when we get to focus on, in fact, on Christ's prayer for us. He had us on his mind who are in Christ Jesus. So our focus here this morning is these 11 apostles. This is whom he is praying for. Initially, he prayed for himself in the first five verses. And now he's praying for the apostles. Now to preach this text this morning, I'm going to use a, a W5 kind of method. I'm going to talk about who Jesus is praying for. I'm going to talk about why he is praying for them. And then, spending more time, I'm going to talk about what he does pray for them. What, in fact, are his petitions. So, beloved, first of all, who is Christ praying for? Now, I've already said that he's praying for the apostles. But they're also represented in this prayer as a, as a group of people that display certain characteristics. I find seven characteristics of these men in the prayer of Jesus. First of all, in verse 6, I read that these are men that belong to the Father and were given to the Son. They, they belong to the Father. Well, how did they belong to the Father? Well, they belong to the Father as all people do in the sense that He created them. But more specifically and more intentionally, it is these men that the Father had chosen out of the world, called to himself, and gave them to Christ as his apostles. They are men that belong to the Father and are given to the Son. Verse 6 also tells us that they, these are men who Jesus manifested the Father's name, meaning he revealed the Father's to them. Remember, he said to them at one point, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. 
Thirdly, these are men who received his words as coming from the Father and believed that he came from the Father. In all their immaturity and misgivings and all their stumbling and, and falling, the one thing they did grasp was the fact that when Christ spoke, he spoke with authority. He spoke as one who was speaking the very words of God. You read in verse 10 that these are men to whom Christ glorified himself. In other words, these are men that uh, express the very glory of God, meaning they, their lives and their conduct revealed God to others. Number five, these are men who were kept and guarded by Christ Jesus. That's a continual theme in this prayer of Christ. Kept, guarded, kept, guarded. Over a dozen times, the kept, guarded, kept, guarded. I mean, you don't need a seminary degree to figure out what was on the mind of Jesus as he was as you're thinking of these 11 apostles and praying to the Father, he's thinking, kept guarded, kept guarded. These are men that were kept and guarded by Christ. Verse 16, they are people who are, were in the world but not of the world. They formed part of society. They were fishermen, many of them. They were common people. They had families. They had children many of them. They, they lived a normal life. They were in the world. But in their heart, they were not of the world. In the same way, Jesus was not of the world. And lastly, verse 18, it is these eleven and more, as we'll see, that were sent into the world with a very particular message. This, these are the men that that Jesus is praying for. And as I reflected on that list, I thought, that really doesn't sound like the disciples that I read about in the Gospels. That really doesn't sound like the men who were arguing which is going to be the greater. It doesn't sound like the men who were making kind of uh, very rash, presumptuous statements. Like, I will go and die with you. It doesn't sound like the men who lacked the maturity of a Christian apostle. Well, I want you to know that there's something about these men, even though they did not exactly obey Christ in everything to perfection, there was something about these men that even though they lacked maturity of what is expected of a Christian ultimately. None of these men even exactly understood the messianic mission. They didn't fully understand that the kingdom of God was not national Israel. They didn't fully understand that the kingdom of God was greater and more magnificent and more glorious than that. But the one thing that stood out in these men is that they had clearly seen Jesus Christ 
as the Messiah as coming from God the Father. Back in chapter 6, we noted Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> Jesus had moved into an era of his teaching where he was teaching very difficult things. He was teaching things that perhaps you this morning in this church fight against. It's hard sayings. Things like, all that the Father has given me will come to me. And everyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. And all that the Father gives to me, I will give eternal life, and no one can pluck them out of their hands. Things like, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be part of me. And the disciples that were following Christ at that time, by name only, left. And Jesus looks at these eleven and says, you want to go too? And this is Peter's answer. Where shall we go? <laughs> Where do we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beloved, I don't want to minimize my sin and my immaturity, your sin and your immaturity, but I want to tell you that when it comes down to it, what you believe in is the most important thing this morning. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life? And have you come to Him as the one who is the Holy One of Israel and bowed before Him? He will make you mature. You see, the faith and the conduct of these 11 apostles was flawed. But their Savior was flawless. His intercession was effective and powerful. That's the point of this message. The, inter, inter, the, the intercession of Jesus was powerful and effective. Because even though we see the faults in these men, Jesus was not finished with them yet. That's the men that he was praying for. Why was he praying? Number two. This is going to be really short. Why was he praying for them? Answer, because the world hates them. Because he was going away, but his mission continued. Three points. The reason Christ was praying for them was the world hates them. He was going away, but his mission would continue. We believe the Luke wrote the Gospel of Acts. And in his Gospel, he accounted for all the ministry of Christ and then when he came to write the sequel, as you will, Acts chapter 1, he said, and so the ministry of Christ continued. How? Through these men. So Christ interceded for them. Okay, the most important thing for us this morning that I want you to grasp is what did Jesus pray for them? What did Jesus pray for them? I noticed three petitions 
Verse 11. Keep them in your name. The second petition. Verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. Verse 17 is number three. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There are three petitions. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one and sanctify them in your truth. We're going to look at each one of those carefully this morning. So the first one, keep them in your name. I hope you're looking at the Bible, making sure I'm not making any mistakes and misquoting this. Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now the youngest child here can figure this out. When Jesus said, keep them in your name, he gave the name. He did not arbitrarily speak to his God as Holy Father. He hardly ever referred to God that way. This is only one of the, I think, about the second or third time in the entire Gospels. So intentionally, Jesus looks at his, turns his eyes towards heaven and says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that I just named you. So what is he saying? Keep them holy. Keep them holy. Notice that request. Strange as it is, he didn't pray make them holy. He didn't pray, I wish they would be holy. He prayed, keep them holy. They are holy. How can that be? How can these men be regarded by a holy God as holy? Keep them holy. Doesn't make sense. So I turn to my Greek New Testament and I read it. It's just bizarre what I read. The Greek says, keep them holy. Hmm. Must be interesting. Keep them holy. The answer is given to us in the New Testament. It's not given to us in this prayer. But in Romans 3.26, we're told that when Christ went to the cross and he died, his death then became efficient for all those prior to the cross whom he had passed over, so to speak. And at that point on Calvary's cross, every single person who had been looking for the Messiah, who had been seeking for the Messiah, was justified completely. Just like you and I are when we come to faith. Jesus was anticipating that when his lifeblood would flow from him and the Father would accept his sacrifice, these men would be regarded as completely holy. And he prays, Father, keep them holy. Unless you miss this this morning, this is what happens to every single person 
who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, He instantly and completely justifies you forever. You are instantly and completely made righteous. And even today, if we could lean in and hear these words, if, if, if these words were being uttered, our Savior would be praying for you perhaps. Father, Holy Father, keep them holy. Keep them holy. But we're not done on this point yet. I want you to notice again, as verse 11 continues, that the purpose of their holiness is uniquely stated here. It's, it's not the only purpose in the Bible, but it's uniquely stated here. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which I regard as keep them holy, which you have given me, that, that's the purpose statement, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, brothers and sisters, it's holiness that produces unity. I'm old enough to know that from the 60s, for 60 years, there have been fragmented movements all around the world, and they're even in the world today, movements of trying to humanly unify the church. And it can never happen on the basis of human ingenuity and human architecture. The only way the church will truly be unified is when the church regards God as holy and realizes that we must be holy even as He is holy. You've had scenarios like this or thought of them. Imagine a family. Imagine a person in the family, a, perhaps a child in a family, an older child in a Christian home who is, who is chosen to do what is wrong, to disobey God. And that same child will come to you sometimes and say things like this, I don't feel like I'm part of the family. Or a person in a Christian church will live a life in wanton rebellion of God, open sin. And they'll come to church and they'll leave and say, oh, I just didn't even feel part of that. Hello? Unity is the result of holiness. And God has intended that if you have chosen to live an unholy life, you're going to feel disconnected. It's His grace that wants you to feel that. He wants you to feel that disconnect. He wants you to feel that longing to be part of what He has created, the church of Jesus Christ. But don't expect to have all joy and happiness and, 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 and a sense of fellowship and and participation and interaction if you openly choose to live a sinful life. It's just not going to happen. It's like trying to mix oil and water. It, it won't work. 
Keep them in your name. Keep them holy. Petition number two, verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, there is a theological debate here, friends, that some translations will read, keep them from evil. And the reason the ESV translates this verse and perhaps other verses, keep them from the evil one, is in, in, in the Greek that's, uh, there's the, uh, the definite pronoun, the, is used. So uh, it, there's every indication that what is meant here is the evil one. But I want to at least be honest enough and say that there is a debate. Of course, it might be a mute debate because the evil one is the source of evil. But I think Jesus has Satan in mind here. Jesus is not unaware that he's the God of this age. Jesus is not unaware that he's a liar and a murderer. Jesus is not unaware of the fact that it is Satan that's going to fall from heaven when he ascends the cross. Jesus is not unaware of the fact that the moment that he cries it is finished, Satan will be bound from deceiving the nations forever. He's not unaware of these things. And so he says to the Father, Keep them from the evil one. And we know from Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it was the cross that defeated Satan. But we also know from other scriptures that Satan is still alive and well, seeking to deceive, seeking to tempt, seeking to cause harm. But nothing that Satan does in this world is ultimately decisive and determinative. Just check out the book of Job. Satan is not on a leash, or Satan is not unleashed, he's on a leash. There's nothing Satan can do to anyone, anywhere, whether it be tempt, cause sin, cause sickness, cause death. None of that is ultimately on his own authority because Satan is on a leash and always has been. God is superior. And God is the determinative cause of all events in the world. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we're told that if you're born of the Spirit, Satan cannot touch you or harm you if you're born of the Spirit. But that does not di diminish his power in this world to cause oppression and problems. That is not diminish his ability to take the God-ordained circumstances that come into our lives and turn them for temptation instead of testing. So Jesus prays, keep them, keep them from the evil one. You've heard the song that's taken from the letters of John. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 
That's true. But from this text, I would suggest a different chorus to sing. And here's his. Greater is he who is praying for you than he that's in the world. Beloved, it's the intercession of Jesus Christ that is ultimate here. Do you think for a second when the Son says to the Father, keep them from the evil one, do you think for a second that prayer would not be answered in absolute entirety? Do you possibly think for a second that when Jesus, the Son, prays, keep them from the evil one, that there's any hint that that prayer would not be answered? Greater is he who is praying for you than he that is in the world. And lastly, the third petition is sanctify them in truth. Verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify is pronounced in Greek, hagiadso. It means to separate. Separate. It means to set apart. Usually to set apart for a purpose. Years ago when I lived uh, north of Irma on an acreage, I had a Chevy truck and then I had another truck that I won't tell you what kind it was. It was 30 miles to Wainwright, so as my dear wife knows, I got in the habit of going to bumper to bumper and places like that and always buying two. In this case, buying four. So if I was anticipating an oil change, I would get two filters for the Chevy truck and two filters for that other thing. And then I would take them back to my garage, and I had a shelving unit, and I would hagiadzo them. I would separate them onto a purpose. There was a place for GM products, and then there was a place for those other vehicles. It was sanctified in a non-religious sense. Jesus is saying that. He's, he's looking at these 11 in his mind and praying to his Father, and he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. Set them apart for truth. And interestingly, it's, he even explains the word within the text. Look again at verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We read on, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. See what he's doing. He's sanctify them in truth, sending into the world. Sanctify in truth, send into the world. <clears throat> and for their sake, I... Now, in my Bible, it says consecrate, but it's hagiadzo, the same word. It's exactly the same word. So we could say, verse 17, sanctify them in truth, and then jump down to verse 19, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified. You see what Jesus is doing? I set myself apart so that they will be set apart. When I read that, when I read that, I go, how could these men fail? <laughs> how in the world 
is it even possible for them to fail in their mission in the world when Jesus himself says, I am sanctifying myself or consecrating myself so that they are sanctified, they are set apart for a purpose. In other words, the life and the ministry of these men is solidly based on the word of God and their mission will succeed. There is no doubt that these men will succeed in what God has called them to do because Jesus says, I set myself apart so that they might be set apart in truth. Is there any question that they will succeed in the mission that Christ called them to do? So let's see what happened after this prayer. Out of 13 apostles, so we had 11 here, we had Matthias in Acts chapter 1 when to replace Judas. And in Acts chapter 9, we had Paul, who refers to himself as the lesser, but he's still an apostle. We had 13 apostles. Of the 13 apostles, all but John were martyred. They were faithful unto death. Do you think prayer that Jesus offered was answered? Keep them holy. Do you think the intercession of Jesus didn't work? All but one were faithful unto death. And John grew old on the Isle of Patmos where Diocletius put him to live out his days. Faithful unto death. Four of them stayed around Jerusalem and Judea planting churches. Nine of them became foreign missionaries and church planters. And they left the area of Jerusalem and Judea. And then they went to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. To the point where Paul said in Colossians, the whole world, and I interpret that to mean the whole known world, the whole world had heard the gospel. Do you think they succeeded? Does anyone doubt that this morning? Eight of them contribute to the writing of the New Testament that we hold near and dear. When Paul was preaching in Thessalonica in Acts 16, Acts 17, I should say, the Jews said, these are the men that turned the world upside down. You think these men were unsuccessful? Well, bring in a witness. How about the Jewish party? What's their view of them? They turned the world upside down. 
reading the early Gospels, you would have never thought that these would men would be these kind of be able to accomplish these kind of things. There was nothing special or spectacular about them. They're only working class men. But Jesus formed them into the backbone of the church, so much so that our faith is grounded on the prophets and the apostles. Do you think the intercession of Christ mounts for nothing? These are the men that turned the world upside down. They are the very backbone and foundation of the church that we love. They went into the entire known world. They went into a world that was under the control of the mightiest empire at the time. They took the gospel into a world that was the that hated Christianity and was the strongest empire in the world at that time, the Roman Empire. And they went into this world unashamedly calling men and women to repent and believe in Christ. Obviously, there's a great attribution because they were men now filled with the Spirit. But before that ever took place, they had a Savior committed to pray for them. The point that I'm making is the intercession of Christ is not in nothing. It is monumental. What was their message that changed the world? What was their message that turned the world upside down? Let me read some verses from Acts without making any comments. See if you can figure out what their message was. Acts 4, 1 and 2. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts 4.33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 17.18, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Acts 23, 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, the message of first importance is, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Okay, class, clicky test. What was the message of the apostles that turned the world upside down? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, behind that fruitful ministry and behind that powerful message was a praying Savior. That truth is stated so clearly in the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now he's talking about us. Because the crucified and risen Savior who has ascended from the Garden of Gethsemane to the throne room of heaven is interceding for believers, they can have absolute assurance they will never perish. Because Jesus died and rose again and has ascended to the throne room and is living every moment of eternity praying for you, you can have absolute assurance that you will never perish. In fact, you can have absolute assurance that everything in your life and my life will work out together for good, the good being our holiness. It's not, the answer is not based on your effort. The answer is not based on your fidelity. The answer is based that all this is guaranteed because we have a Savior in heaven, rose from the dead, and is praying. And the assumption in the syllogism is really clear. God the Father will always answer the prayers of God the Son. You better know that. You better know that. This means that you can face evil. If these men, this motley crew, as some call them, if these men could face the Roman Empire with the message of the resurrection, that means you can face any enemy or threat in your life with steel-eyed determination because you have a Savior also praying for you. This means that you can proclaim the resurrection to the men and women you work with. And they might turn around and say, well, that's a myth. They might turn around and say, I'll give you all kinds of answers. But you can say it with dogged determination. Christ has risen. And that is my hope. And that is my confidence. And God, by perchance, may use your words also to bring them to faith. This means that the Father will give you all things you need to do His will. He won't give you all things. He'll give you all things to do His will. Paul said that if God freely gave His Son, will He not also freely in Christ give you all things? meaning all things to do His will. If it's God's will, you can do it. Period. I, 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 you know, I, we could take and kind of do a landscape of all the possibilities, but how about if I just keep it short and to the point? If it's God's will, you can do it. 
There's not even a question about it. Lastly, it means that you can risk your life and be faithful even unto death. And you will win and the gospel will win in the end because Christ is praying. Before I close, I want to speak to somebody here this morning or somebody online. And you may not know this Christ who died and rose again. You've heard the story, but you do not know him intimately and personally. And I want you to be aware of the fact that today is a day of grace. The very fact that you're living and breathing and thinking and hearing is the fact that God has been patient with you today, that he might again have you see and learn that in his love he sent his son to die for your sin, your sin that will separate you from God. And he lived a life of perfection that you can't live, but if you trust him, his perfection gets counted to your account. And he died on Calvary's cross once and for all so that there's not a sin in anyone's life that cannot be completely forgiven and completely cast away and forgotten. You want absolution this morning? You might be a dear Catholic friend listening. You want absolution? You can only find it in Jesus Christ. And he is the only one that can absolve a, absolve a person from sin. And it's not by anything you can do but by simply putting your faith and trust in Him. And this same Jesus who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, on this day we celebrate the fact that He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. His resurrection is the sign of approval of the Father that says, you have completely satisfied my wrath. And this same Jesus gives to every person who trusts in him his Holy Spirit to lead you from this day forward through to heaven and eternity. Please do not turn him away. Please do not reject. He may be pleading with you this morning to trust him. He may be pleading with you this morning, as Peter said, where can you go but to the one who loved you and died for you? To all those listening online and all he those here this morning, I want to convey to you my fondest love and wishes for a very joyous Easter weekend. You find the time to carve out great moments of worship and celebration as you continue in this weekend. And I'd ask you to stand and allow me to, to share the benediction that God has for you this morning.
Now, Heavenly Father, we pray to you through the risen Christ. And we claim and we give and accept your benediction on our lives in these words. I commend you to God and the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints. Amen.